Hey friends, welcome back to the show. This is part two of Suzanne Stabile and I from Harvard, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures, back in like two weeks ago. So uh, if you didn't listen to the first part, I think you're going to catch on. You'll be fine. But I hope you did listen to it. And if you haven't listened to Suzanne before, uh, she's just one of my favorite people in the world. And I think you're going to see why. And without further ado, here we are. Outstanding. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, how many of you know my dear friend, Suzanne Stabile? Yes? Okay. Uh, her beloved husband, Joe, is sitting on the front row, and Joel, yeah, yeah, round of applause. Yeah, that's the that's, one. That's the wrong, he's, he's not in the family, uh, the family of God, I'm sure, but not this family. And then, uh, but he, you're kind of like a, a, a brother to me in some ways, because Suzanne kind of like an adopted mom kind of thing. So you and I are kind of brothers. There's my pseudo brother, Joel, over there. Uh, he'll be taking pictures. The two of them together are a lot to handle. Yes. But the room needs to know that you've got some agents in the crowd. Yeah. They're, I got people. You got people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you don't know Suzanne, for the few of you, what I, I, you need to know is that she is uh, a very uh, successful writer. Uh, honestly, between you and I, each of our first books have together combined sold over a million copies. That's correct. Um, there's a somewhat even distribution, um, but we don't need to talk about exactly we how We might even. should define somewhat. No, we don't. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, we don't need to. Uh, because what's yours is mine, what mine is, That's is right. yours. That's right. Yes. So, you know, uh, our youngest uh, was a handful, and, uh, he, and yet he was very attentive in church. And we lived in a two-story house. Mm-hmm. And he was in trouble with Joe, and Joe said, you're my, you, son, are going to do what I tell you to do, and you're going to start doing it now. Now you get yourself upstairs and get your stuff and come down here and we'll go to school. And BJ, when he got upstairs, leaned over the railing and said, uh, you know, in God's world, we're brothers. <laughs> it's hard to argue with that. It, it, it was, Joe was speechless, actually. Yeah. <laughs> The Rev didn't have something to respond with no, that? No, not that it was appropriate for a child. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe this session as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that happens. That happens. Um, what we are going to respond to today uh, is a continued conversation that we began yesterday uh, talking about the way that the tool of the Enneagram helps us deal with and work through a lot of the things that we've experienced over the last uh, few years, but in, in many ways, many of us have experienced this throughout different phases and seasons of our life. Uh, the backstory for this session is three years ago, Suzanne and I were supposed to be doing this, um, but then the COVID-19 pandemic took place and everything got put on ice, including this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so now we actually are going to be talking about something different than what we were going to talk about three years ago. Right. Do you remember what we were going to talk about three years ago? No, do you? Yeah, no, I have no idea. But what we have to talk to today is something I think we can all relate to. Uh, I'm going to start with, um, this is... Miriam Greenspan. Mm-hmm. What, what's her background? Who is she? If you haven't read Miriam Greenspan, you should. Um, and you should, I don't say should all the time with books because I read a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you're at this event and you're in this audience, you should read Healing Through the Dark Emotions by Miriam Greenspan. Healing Through the Dark Emotions, Miriam Greenspan. And that's where all that comes from. Healing Through the Dark Emotions. Mm-hmm. If you are a student of the Enneagram, you know what an Enneagram 7 is. 
and that's what I am. And so to have... That's what your brother is too. Yes. It's a handful. And so to deal with these dark emotions are not something that we naturally like to do. So did you force me to have this conversation in front of everyone because you knew I'd probably not have it in private? Well, I thought you'd be distracted if we had it in private. And up here, you have to pay attention to me. Do I have to? I, I have my way. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. So we have three dark emotions that we're going to talk about. Yes. To start with. Yeah. Okay. There are lots of emotions we could talk about, but we're going to talk about these three. And the reason we're going to talk about these three is because Miriam Greenspan says that these are the most common emotions that we all experience, and yet they're the emotions that we most avoid. And so we are avoiding what we hold in common, and it has a really negative consequence. Okay. Uh, so here they are. Uh, let me list off three, and then we'll go back and talk about uh, each of them individually. Suppressed grief, benumbed fear, and overwhelming or unconscious despair. This sounds like a fun party. This sounds like a fun class. Let's start with suppressed grief. So let's start first with me making you participate in this. You know, I could have read those, but I, you volunteered. So now you have to deal with you them. You suckered me into this. I did. I Congratulate me. Thank you. I don't, I don't want to congratulate you for that. Okay, so what you see here, this is what a friendship looks like, where you have one friend who's forcing the other friend to grow up, and it's happening in real time right in front of y'all. We've been friends for how long? I have a picture from our first time we did a podcast, and it's... Way back. It's, it's, we're, we're getting around a decade, yeah. give or take. Yeah. And so uh, there's some debate over the historicity of which account of ours, of our friendship is the true one, um, but we met years ago, and we've been dear friends ever since. Absolutely. And uh, my family loves you, and many of a, many in the world love you. So let's talk about these before I distract us anymore. Okay. Suppressed grief, which in my opinion is the only kind of grief to have. Just not deal with it, suppress it down. Uh, why do we need to not have suppressed grief? Read the next slide. Be- oh, okay. Because it turns into depression, anxiety, or addiction. Okay, all right, that's a solid excuse. Okay, so um, I have the gift of speaking to, I guess, every denomination and, and at times every faith belief. And I love the church. I love the United Methodist Church. It's a mess right now, and I still love it. I am concerned that our churches are losing members, all of them, not just Methodists, and I still have my complaints about the church that I love, and I think you don't get to criticize the church unless you're in it, and if you're in it, then you get to have your say, and I do not think the church has done a good job teaching us how to grieve, and the culture certainly doesn't do a good job of teaching us how to grieve, and I think that's a huge problem and I thought it was a problem before this mm-hmm. because, before Greenspan, because I didn't think of it before her. I thought of it before I found her. Because it causes all kinds of trouble in families and in human beings. And we live in a culture where everybody says, you know, it's been two weeks. You need to get back out there. Yeah. If somebody says that this human, I literally cannot 
love any more than I do this minute, except by the time we leave here, I will love him more. I just adore him. And if he dies before I do, and somebody tells me after two weeks that my every other breath is gone and I need to get back out there, y'all are going to read about me, and I'm going to be in jail. Yeah, you'll, you'll go after someone. Because <laughs> it's going to be a whipping. How dare you tell me to not grieve? But we, sometimes that's all we collectively or we individually know to do. It's the thing we want to push forward. We, in the church that I serve, we had an awful tragedy um, about five years ago. My uh, father-in-law is one of his best friends, one of the uh, elders at our church, uh, a dear family friend that I knew uh, long before I started serving at this church because of my family. Um, his life ended in suicide. And it was... Uh, unexpected. I will never forget the moment uh, when my wife comes home. She's a night shift neonatal ICU nurse, and she wakes me up, and she says the words, Greg's dead, and like, it, I, I didn't know how at three in the morning to process these words. I had to look at my phone to see all the text messages, which I had slept through, um, to, like, that seemed more real to me than her words, and it was just so disorienting, and Greg is a beloved man um, who I, I, I miss weekly. I mean, we think about it all the time. That's and grieving. Th- that's, yes. And there's a loss that we carry with us. And as leaders of a church, you, you have to go, okay, wh- what, do we, what do you do? How, how do I get up and preach uh, a few days after this and explain how someone who we all loved and admired and were so blessed by God through him uh, that his life ended in suicide? And it was just such a, a shocking thing. And there are I remember one voice of someone who's very well-intentioned and loves Jesus and loves the church and wants to help people and said a couple weeks later, you know, we need to not worry about what happened in the past. We need to just look to the future. And it's all he had. It was the only resources he had. It was the only tool in his toolbox that he could reach to is, all right, let's just push forward and move ahead um, because that's all he had. And he didn't realize that suppressed grief turns into depression, anxiety, or addiction. What he knew is, th- this is my tool to go forward. Right. How do we start developing these other tools, like not choosing to suppress grief when that happens? Um, I, evidently, there's a very fine line, and I'm not sure what it is. But, you know, I teach by telling stories. So my dad died. And he was, uh, he had built the first hospital in Floydata, Texas, where I'm from, he and my mom, who was his nurse. And uh, he practiced medicine there for 57 years. And in Floydata, uh, the casket is at the funeral home and you can come view the body and, you know, come and go and all that. Well, I stayed there as much as I could because everybody who came told stories about my dad mm-hmm. and I wanted to hear them. So uh, our children were small. And uh, Jenny, our second oldest, was with us. And she was very taken with everything that was happening. And she uh, couldn't see my dad because the casket, the beer was too high. So they, is that the right word? Did you say beer? Yeah, I think that's the right word, but it's not how, what you think of. You need to talk to Joe. So um, you... you um, Joe said, could you get her a ladder or a step stool so she can see? Mm-hmm. So they bring one. So Jenny is hands on the side of the casket, and she doesn't think my dad's tie is right, so she fixes it. And I get up to go stop her, and Joe, who has never done it before or since, 
grabbed me by the back of my skirt and pulled me back. That was brave. And, <laughs> and I thought, okay. And then she didn't like the hand that was on top, so she moved his hands. And I'm thinking, I, I need to stop this. So then, let's get my position for this. Then all of a sudden, she's got both hands on the casket. And I see her, Joe does too, start to lift her leg up because she's getting in. And that was the line. <laughs> and Joe said, we can't let her do that. Mm-hmm. So that's grieving. Grieving is uh, made possible. We've done a lot of work with this. And Joe calls people when they lose somebody they love that he's responsible for as a pastor. And he says, do you have time to talk? And they think it's going to be about funeral stuff. And then he says, tell me, just tell me stories. Mm-hmm. I want to hear the stories. Oh, is this for the funeral? No, I just want to hear the stories. That's grieving. Yeah. But we're in a hurry, and we like to cover up death. And we, uh, we Joe and I, have a lot of thinking about cremation. We're not opposed to it. And we understand how expensive everything is and that it's not possible for everybody. But we both have come to believe Joe's had much more experience than I have. He'd be a pastor 50 years this year. And he thinks that people need a body to accept death. Mm -hmm. And if we don't learn to accept that this is his line, that life Uh, has not ended, it has merely changed, which says all of our faith stories right there. Mm -hmm. And then um, we get to be really sad until we're not. And our culture can't deal with that kind of, you know, it's not efficient to be sad. And in Enneagram terms, we live in a three country and we're trying to get everything done. When somebody donates their body to science, they take the body from the hospital to the science place, you never see it again. Mm-hmm. Those are the families that we've found have the most trouble. Mm-hmm. And we've been at this a long time, and we've watched those things happen. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Suppressed grief often turns into depression, anxiety, or addiction. Uh, Suppressed grief, I hear you also using concepts like hurried, rushed, uh, we're moving past this. We're trying to, to jump somewhere else. Uh, I, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. We're, we're uncomfortable with that. Um, I found opportunities to lament in worship services are very foreign uh, to our tribe and other tribes. Um, and so in, in my tradition, we haven't had the resource of a Good Friday, right. uh, of an Ash Wednesday, that are attempts to acknowledge from dust we came to dust we shall return, to acknowledge, um, and this is uh, Jürgen Moltmann's line about in the cross, God experienced the God-forsakenness of man. Jesus quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, when we acknowledge that feeling that Jesus experienced, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, we acknowledge the grief that you feel when you lose a father, right. um, when, uh, when we lose someone that we love. Right, but it's a head trip. How so? Well, it's thinking about it. But if you don't have a ritual, 
then it's not, uh, you can't touch it, you can't hold it, mm -hmm. and you can't feel it. And you would be very comfortable with a head trip. Yeah, that's why I talk at those services. Yeah, yeah. I would not. Okay, so the difference of, of intellectualizing. And your orientation to time, Enneagram-wise, is the future. Yes, as a seven. And mine, as a two, is the present moment. Uh -huh. So when we talk about grief, I'm going to give some German theologian's quote right there, that's yeah. which, what I just naturally do, and then you are going to talk about... No. 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 Yeah, we're not going to do that only. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah. But we got to have head and heart and intuitive mm -hmm. doing responses. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, uh, I don't want to get in trouble. So if I if this is a bad story, just stop me and we'll just go on. No, I'm that's I am not taking that responsibility. <laughs> no. Three of our children went to school in Conway, Arkansas at Hendricks College, which is a Methodist liberal arts school. And Joe and I go on retreat every year. And generally, well, almost always some of our pastor friends plan our retreats. Richard Rohr has been our spiritual mentor for the last 30 years, and he's planned a bunch of them. And uh, we went to see the kids first, and Joe had found a place, a cabin up in the Ozarks for our retreat. And we head up there, and uh, I said, who planned our retreat? And he smiled, and he said, well, I did. I said, well, you've never done that before. He said, no, but I, I planned this one. I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, it's a different retreat than we've been on before. We're going to be on a silent retreat. <laughs> Trapped in the Ozarks on a silent retreat for three days. Oof. I wrote on the bathroom mirror in my lipstick, talk to me. He wrote back in a different color on my lipstick, no. So prior to that, <laughs> we had been asked to uh, teach the world's religions to a group of Methodist churches. And I had a lot to learn. He knew a lot and still had more to learn. I had a lot to learn. And what I discovered and talked to him about was that every faith belief except Protestants have prayer beads. And so, I, you know, if some people have it and I don't, then I'm okay. If everybody has it and I don't, I figure I'm missing something. Yeah, you're left out. And from his Catholic background, the Catholics have their rosaries, and so there's a thing. They have something. Yeah. yeah. So on the silent retreat, he created the prayers for prayer beads around the Galatians reading of the fruits of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So did you get that scripture drop there? I was really proud yeah, of you. Thank you. That's great for a Methodist. Yes. <laughs> if I was Baptist, I could tell you where in Galatians, but as we know, I'm not. So, <laughs> competition is evermore. So, um, we now have these beads. Mm -hmm. So, when you pray the beads, these real short prayers, uh, around the fruits of the Spirit, then you're doing something that you're thinking, and you're talking, and you're doing something. And that encompasses all three centers of intelligence. Hmm. And so, there's balance in that that prepares you for church or worship, like walking a labyrinth. The cathedrals in Europe have a labyrinth outside, and you walk the labyrinth to leave the world there so you can come worship and then be prepared and ready to go back out into the world. Hmm. Well, if you don't have any ritual around death, then there's no grieving because there's, there's no way to grieve. So it is sadness or frustration or addiction 
but grieving requires all three centers. Hmm. My mom passed away uh, three years ago uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, grief when there is social distance is quite mm -hmm. a uh, complex experience uh, to the point where my mom passes away, and uh, she lived in Abilene, Texas, where my dad is a retired uh, psych professor at ACU, and churches were closed, uh, funeral homes were closed. Yeah, it was awful. Um, uh, called my friend Jonathan up and he connected us with uh, some friends, Brad and Deborah, who opened up their home and we had a funeral in their backyard, which was extremely uh, generous of them. Uh, and it was very meaningful, but there still was like this, like it was a weird grief. And I honestly appreciated the space uh, as someone who's forward facing with a lot of my work to have this to, to be uh, more intimate was, was helpful to some degree for me, but I also found that it, it just, it was a grief, as I observed my grief, um, it, it was hard for me to, to express all of what I was going through, mm -hmm. and so I found myself connecting to music in a degree that I didn't before, because in some ways, yeah. I found like the arts have a way to uh, bypass maybe the natural blockage that I would have from my head to my heart, right. and I didn't understand until uh, maybe a year or two later, and one of my good friends um, in Abilene, uh, Garrett Sublette, uh, was looking at the, the Spotify, here's my year in review of music, and it was like, you know, Ryan Bingham and a couple other, like, real, like, country musicians, not like pop Nashville country, which is fine if you like that stuff, but um, is it, though? Um, uh, Careful. He, no, he's a real... He's the real deal. That's the, No like, pop country. No, it's like country musicians who... Here's the, I don't listen to country music if they look like they're as much of a cowboy as me. That's a good choice. Someone said amen. I didn't appreciate that. That's okay, a that good was choice. a strong. That's a but good choice. Yes. Anyway, and so he goes, Luke, you're a seven. Why are you listening to sad music so much? And mm -hmm. I was like, I, I think because they can express something that I have a hard time stepping into. That's it. That's it. So in our churches, if we only talk about, if we skip from life to resurrection, yeah. and we don't deal with death. First of all, then we haven't lived within the Paschal mystery. Mm -hmm. And Richard Rohr says there is no other pattern other than living, dying, and rising. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that we do it all week, every week, all year, every year, that we got to learn that that's the only pattern we've got. Yeah. So then you can't, if that's what we embody intuitively, then you can't skip it and experience grieving. Okay, you've got to keep going. That's I don't it. want to talk about this next one. Well, we're going to. Benumbed fear. That's it. Or as I just call it, fear, because that's yep. what I do with all of my... Well, I'm quoting. I, you know, I had to look up benumbed, but it's her work, so I'm using her Is words. it really a word, benumbed? Yes. Well, I feel benumbed, because I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> benumbed fear can easily... You all can <laughs> expect that the deeper this gets, the more humor we're going to get from him. Now, if you don't know the Enneagram, you need to read about and learn about sevens, and you know that my book is the place for you to do that as an aside. But this is seven in action right here. Trying to skip that one. Just keep going. All right, here we go. I think this is a tomato. Tom we have just different perspectives on we this. We do. Okay. Benumbed fear can easily lead to irrational prejudice, toxic... Where are we going to go with that word? Rage. Rage. There looked like there's an eye there. Okay. Toxic rage and acts of violence. Say it again, Ooh. now that you know what the word is. <laughs> it's a big word. Benumbed fear can easily lead to irrational prejudice, toxic rage, 
and acts of violence. Have I told you I recently got into jujitsu and I really enjoy violence? Violence. I have heard you several times this weekend talk about guys that you think you could take and guys that you don't think you could. Yeah. Is that because of my benumbed fear? That's exactly what it's because okay. of. Okay. All right. Now, in all seriousness, if we can't grieve because we haven't been taught to, but also because it's not modeled for us, and also because our cultural traditions don't allow for it. I was a social worker. I worked with the elderly poor before I uh, started working with Father Stabile at the time. And um, I had a woman whose son died. They were poor. And he was at the funeral home. And they weren't able to get together the money to pay for the funeral the first 24 hours. So they had another day, but they charged them for another day. And another day, but they charged them for another day. And another day, but they charged them for another day. So that is a perfect example of the fact that in some cases, not everybody, don't send us a letter. In some cases, the funeral mortuary business is a business, yeah. not a ministry. And so it doesn't allow for things that we need either when we're back on yeah. inability to grieve. That means that the people who are afraid, I'm afraid I can't get the money, I'm afraid I don't know what's happening to the body, I'm afraid because I can't get this money together for the funeral, I'm afraid to not have a funeral, I'm a, my people are afraid because I'm so upset, everybody's afraid. And I could give you a thousand examples, but we don't have time. 500. But we don't have time of the fact that we have ways of trying to make fear go away or we act like we're not afraid. We do all of those things. And not being able to be afraid leads to... Stay in touch here, Reeve. Benumbed fear, which leads to irrational prejudice. Start with that. Irrational prejudice. Is there How much of that do you have? Is there a rational amount of prejudice? Like, are we supposed to have a little bit? I don't know. Is that on the card? It says irrational, as though... Is there... I would say no. I think you're not supposed to... All prejudice to... is irrational. I don't want to be on microphone saying some prejudice is okay, so I'm going to go with no. Anyway, carry on. I'm going to stick with Miriam Greenspan's quote and say that we all, we all have irrational prejudice. You just watch yourself. Watch yourself throughout the day. You do life with, I like that, I don't like that, I didn't like her, he's not very friendly, that was fun, that wasn't fun, I don't want to do that again, I hate kale, I blah, blah, blah. That's what we do all day long. We do that kind of thinking, either or thinking, not both and thinking, all day. And it's irrational, Mm -hmm. right? And that leads to, I don't even understand the rage that I see. I heard this morning that we have had 170 mass shootings in the United States since January 1st. A mass shooting is four people or more? 170. I have this ministry in Dallas. I have a cohort that has 40 people in it. They come from all over the country. We, take, we had 40 out of 300 applicants. Like, we got a lot of diversity. And I had four people in the room who were directly affected by the shooting, the mass shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. 
Now that's too much. And so we're going to have to figure out how to learn to name and deal with anger before it becomes rage. And it's a slippery slope from anger to rage. And it's a slippery slope from fear to anger. In fact, maybe most anger is based in fear. Hmm. So when we feel anger, the question to ask is, what am I afraid of? That's a good question. Okay. And some therapists say, I used to say, therapists say that anger is never the primary emotion. But of course, over the years, several therapists have come to me and said, I think it is. So I, uh, most, most therapists say that something else comes before anger, hurt, fear, yeah. something else, and then anger comes. And if, if we can't acknowledge that we are being manipulated by fear, if you don't have the right toothpaste, then nobody's ever going to love you. you I, I am... grateful for all of the movement toward inclusion of other denominations and their uh, way of seeing scripture in the world. I'm very hopeful about that because uh, as Christians, we got to find a way to respect each other and Mm -hmm. hang together. And I thought for a long time about whether or not I was going to tell this story, and I'm going to. And so this may be my last time here at Pepperdine. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for this to be my last time, no. No, I'm just talking about me. Okay, this good. Is my last time, potentially. Okay. And I don't think you've ever heard this story. So Floyd Ada had 5,000 people. When I was in high school, I said to my mother one day, you know, I thought I knew everything in high school, and I said, you know, that friend of yours is such a gossip. I don't know why you're friends with her. I got all up and big and... Mm-hmm. My mother sat me down and said, you listen to me. I've been living here a long time, and I hope to live here till I die. And she lived there for 67, eight years. And she said, if I start eliminating from my life the people who do something that I don't like, I'm going to be pretty lonely when I get old. Mm-hmm. So don't you ever say that again. I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, mm-hmm. ma'am. So I go away to college, and my mom's friend Mary dies. And Mary was your denomination. She was Church of Christ. We were Methodists. And Mary died. And uh, she loved Mary a lot. They were bridge partners, and their husbands were fishing buddies. And I got home uh, to go to Mary's funeral. And uh, my mom was whistling in the kitchen, and she was just happy. And I said, I don't understand what's happening. You just lost one of your best friends. Why are you whistling? And she said, cause. Mary thought we weren't ever going to get to see each other again, and now, now she knows we are. Hmm. 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 Uh, I that. Looks like I might get to come back. <laughs> Touch and go still. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I could get in so much trouble between now and then. So, that's grieving. It's not turned into something else. Mm -hmm. See how that works? And I, y'all, we're all we've got. And there are a lot of people who need what we collectively have. 
And, you know, skirts go up and down, and I stick with down because I don't like short skirts. And your religion's popular, and then my religion's popular, and then somebody else's religion is popular, and then they have more, and they know this, and they know that. Here's what I don't like. This could do it. I don't like the assumption on the part of any human or any group of humans that they know who's in and who's out. And we are building community over against other people because that's the fastest way we cohere. And I think the last time we were a community as a country was after World War II. After 9-11, you know, we were all together for about 15 days. Yeah. And then the flags came down and we were arguing about reparations and all of those things. Sure. And if we can't learn to cohere around the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teachings that follow, if we can't do that, then I wouldn't want to be part of us either. Hmm. And so benumb fear leads, can easily lead to irrational prejudice, yeah. which we've experienced. Uh, let's talk about the next one. Let's talk about how scared I would be if my sons were black. Okay. Like, let's talk about that. All right. I figure if my two sons get, or my son-in-laws are now my grandsons, get pulled over, they're going to get a ticket and sent home. I have friends who, have, who, who are black, who have sons, who don't get to rely on that because of that. Irrational prejudice that leads to violence is something that we have to address. And I think we want to, and we don't know how. We don't know how. So some leaders are going to have to rise out of all of us and say, this is how you do it. So here's what I know. Where's my blue? What's your name again? We talked outside. Sharita and I connected outside. I like her glasses. She liked what I said. I don't know if you have sons. All righty, so do I. You and I can be friends and allies just based on that. And we can show everybody else how to do that. Yeah. So you're going to have to move to Dallas. <laughs> I'd love to stay here, but I can't do the steps. <laughs> That's, that is how easy that is. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing it. Okay, I'm getting a little preachy. You better move on. I, amen. <laughs> I Thank you. Amen from the husband. That's yeah, a good there you sign. go. Uh, okay, so that I don't receive any acts of violence, we'll move on to the next one with your permission. Uh-huh. Is this permission? Yep. Okay. Overwhelming or unconscious despair is also a core ingredient of the increasing incidence of chronic depression worldwide. Yeah. You know, we don't even know what despair is how to define it. Why? Because we don't name it. We use the word desperate, but we don't use the word despair. And there are people uh, during and coming out of COVID who are experiencing despair. And it's tricky, and it's complicated, and we're not addressing it. You can't, we, we can't just let a million people died during COVID in our country, a million people. 
We can't just let that go. Like, oh, oh, well, we've still got this many million. We'll make it. Really? And there was no grieving because you couldn't have a funeral. You couldn't see the body. You couldn't, you couldn't do any of the things. We just now, at First Methodist Church in Dallas, have, they have just now completed the leftover memorial services from the four years of COVID. You know how hard it is to grieve something a year later that happened back then? And then you add fear because you don't know how to grieve it and you know you're supposed to behave a certain way and you don't know what it is. And then you add despair because you weren't able to live out the living, dying, rising pattern that is everything. Mm -hmm. You said we don't know how to define despair. Right. We know how to talk about the word desperate. Right. We know how to use that. If we can't define uh, what the word despair is on our own, do you think maybe you could help us point to what a working definition of despair could possibly be? Uh, I think we could have a conversation about it and we might be able to do it together. I've never said that line before. I just did this yeah, morning. Like, so. Holy like, Spirit's all up in this right now. you feel okay? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. The Holy Spirit's just helping me a lot. So stop looking at the clock because, you know, we can't stop the Holy Spirit. No, 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 <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I think despair is whatever is after, after desperate. When desperation doesn't work. Mm. then you give up all the things that you try in desperation and just fall into despair. And I think despair is hopelessness. Mm. And so let's think about this. What about all of our brothers and sisters who are not churched and who don't know who they are in relationship to God? Then what do you do? Then in despair, if you don't believe that there is a creator that's way bigger than you are, then what do you do? Mm -hmm. despair so when you're desperate you reach for anything the you old try. adage the old adage about someone who's uh swimming right. and they start to drown right and if you try to save them it actually could be very right. problematic for everyone because they will pull anyone under right. despair means i'm reaching for anything uh or desperate means i'm reaching for anything when you stop reaching you're That's no longer despair. desperate you're That's just it. That's it. you've given up yeah I read a story one time, I don't know where, I think it was a fact, actually, I think it happened, where a, a mother was stealing food from somebody's farm to feed her family, and they caught her and put her in jail, and the farmer came and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that, and he gave her whatever she needed out of his crop. Hmm. That's what prevents despair, but we're so isolated, and we're so... I just got to go, I have to go back to how we're being manipulated by fear. Is, is the fear leading to the isolation? I, I think the fear leads to despair. And I think people who are feeling depressed and some despair are malleable enough to be manipulated. And I think one of the places we, we the collective we, not just us here, manipulate is uh, in churches where we have all the answers. How, how does that manipulate when? Well, either you do this or you're going to hell. That's kind of manipulative. Mm -hmm. Either you do these three things to try to make up for the fact that you were going to hell, but now if you do this, you're not going to hell anymore. Like, I don't talk about heaven and hell much because I don't know much about either one. I just figure... It, life after this is going to include that guy. Hmm. And I'm going with him. 
and you're going to be glad to see me when I get there. I will. I will. Glad and surprised. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And is that based on <laughs> denominational uh, uh, belief, or is that based on the things you know about me? <laughs> I don't do either or thinking. <laughs> oh, it's there you both go. That, that's a point for you. Yes. Very good. Exactly. Well done. Exactly. So despair, isolation, the, the hungry mother who's trying to provide for right. her family, uh, makes desperate actions. Right. Um, and if she goes home and can't feed them, or if they throw her in jail for stealing vegetables out of a field, yeah. then there's nothing left but despair. Well, one of the, um, Unless yeah. you believe, like we do, which is that there is a greater good that is in charge of all of this. Mm-hmm. And at, the, Joe says, God cannot be anything other than faithful. Mm. And Joe says, there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there is nothing you can do to get God to love you less. He's a pretty good preacher. Yeah. <laughs> should keep him around. I'm keeping him. I'm... Let, me, let me give this quote from our friend Miriam. Okay, how much time do we have? We're, we have all the time in the world. We do not. How much time do we have? I'm not going to tell you we have seven minutes. Uh, these, what is that word? That looks, these all are. My handwriting is so much better than yours, I'm surprised we're having this conversation. That's not saying much. These are the, emotion, are the emotions we must avoid. These are the emotions... We most avoid... You want to do it? I do. So, Greenspan says, (laughs) Grief, fear, and despair are basic emotions that are part of everyday life, an inevitable part of everyday life. Then she says, There are surely many other emotions, but as a result of my study and reading about grief and loss over the last five years, I'm convinced that our inability to bear these three is the source of much of our individual and collective problems. Now, she's there with a lot of study, and I want you to read Miriam Greenspan, and I have uh, 10 more cards over there that I wanted to talk to you about, so I'm going to briefly talk to you about two of them, if Luke will let me, because I want you to go read these books, because it will make your ministry and your life better, I promise. Is that okay? That's great. The first one is Pauline Boss, and she's in her 90s. And she uh, was a social worker who became a therapist, and she has written three books, two of which I'm going to recommend highly to you. And if you're a therapist, you'll note the third one when you look for her two books, and I would encourage you to get that. The first one is Ambiguous Loss, and it's a little book, and you have uh, space and time to read it, and I would like for you to. And here's why. Because of all the things that we've just talked about in terms of Greenspan, we have to look at the reality of ambiguous loss. And ambiguous loss occurs when someone is physically present but psychologically absent or when someone is psychologically present but physically absent. And that is what happened to us during COVID. There is ambiguity in the losses that we experienced All through COVID, we couldn't get to our people, we couldn't see them, we lost friends, we lost parents, we had to, not everybody is is in our line of work and not everybody gets to have 
somebody helped them plan a funeral for their mom and all the things that happened. Um, Lindsay dealt with it in the NICU all, constantly because people couldn't be with the babies and all, all the things. It's everywhere. Ambiguous loss is everywhere. And now because we weren't set up to even do the grieving we know how to do, which is not where we need to go, then what happens in all of that process is that we have uh, families who lost somebody during COVID who are physically present, the families, mm -hmm. and the person is physically gone. So that means that because they're still grieving that loss, that person is psychologically present but physically not. Hmm. It's a brilliant book. It has lots of examples that you will use immediately in ministry and in relationship with people that you love and care about. Please do that. The second book that I would encourage you to read is The Myth of Closure. And Pauline Boss wrote that during COVID. And part of the problem that we have, and she opens the book by talking about watching a, a TV something, news I guess, and Anderson Cooper was on this uh, panel. And somebody on the panel, they had caught some person who had committed a crime and found the body, some story like that. And one of the people on the panel with Anderson Cooper said, well, now the family can experience closure. And Anderson Cooper said, closure is not a real thing. That's a made-up media word to make people feel better. And we're trying to put closure around everything. And it's a mistake. And she wrote a book that tells you how it's a mistake. And, and all I can say is that we looked for closure when we said COVID's not real. We looked for closure when we said it's over. We looked for closure when we said there's no reason to wear masks. That's all people who are looking for closure. I don't know how to deal with this, and I don't want to deal with it, and so it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. Mm -hmm. Fauci's terrible and all the stuff we did. Mm -hmm. So there's also a myth of closure. Um, I think the... the um, Saddest experience I ever had as Joe's wife dealing with a family uh, in a church that we served for nine years. Uh, a family had two little boys, and they were adorable. They were four and two. And they took the two-year-old to Cook's Children's in Fort Worth, called and asked us to come, and he, his brain stem was dying. So every minute was, he's yeah. not going to live. And I think we were there for 36 hours or some, maybe 48. We never left. And um, I did silly things, you know, because I felt like I had to talk. I don't know where I get that from. I felt like I had to talk, and I, I said stupid stuff like uh, to his mom and dad, we've been here a long time. Would you like for me to go get you something to eat? If my child was dying and somebody offered me food, I would punch them, I guess. But I was just trying to do, you do know, something. it's like, oh, I don't have anything to give. Yeah. And at that point in my life, I wasn't mature enough to just be silent and be present. Hmm. And then they went into a room with Joe and they asked me to come in. I don't know why, but I did. Because the hospital wanted them to donate Colin's organs. And they were doing all this talk about, are we going to do that or should we do that? And they're asking Joe what they should do. And 
I'm watching my husband try to help people make those kinds of decisions. And every time, that was 30 years ago, 25. And I still hear from his mom fairly regularly. And every time I do, she mentions Colin. Hmm. That's healthy. She didn't move on. She just brought the memory of him with her. Can you give me a thumbnail difference of closure, which is a myth, compared to acceptance, which is part of what healing looks like? Yeah. Closure is, okay, we've done this now. We need to wrap it up. And we, we, we've got closure now. They found the body. We have closure now because the veterans are coming home. You know, I've worked with veterans. There's no closure for them. None. And, and so it's a myth that we're putting on people. We need to, we need to kind of wrap this up. We, you need to move on. I know you really loved him, but you, you need to come have dinner with us. I, no. Or, great. But that has to be my choice, not somebody telling me to do that. And because we're me, and, you know, I, I represent, Peter represents me a lot. You know, he just says the wrong stuff all the time, and so do I. And I, I, I know that I try to make people feel better when they don't want to feel better. They want to feel their loss. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they're uncomfortable. It's because I'm uncomfortable. Read the books. It's way more than that. I'm not good at summing up things. I know that comes as a shock to y'all. I'm sure it does. You know what? Hmm. Um, I love you like you were my own. Hmm. I do too. I love our friendship. Um, It's a big honor for me Hmm. that you invited me to share this time with you. Thank you. It is my honor. And I speak for all of us. Thank you so much for being with us. And um, it's been a blessing. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.